Well, it's uh, great to be back with you uh, here on another holiday uh, weekend. I, for some reason, Chad just gives me all the holiday sermons. I'm going to run out of them pretty soon. I was here for Father's Day, if uh, you all remember, and I have a confession to make about our time here. My wife uh, came with me uh, and my son uh, for the Father's Day sermon, and on the way out the door, my wife stole one of those teal journey shirts on the way out the door, and she proudly wears that like every week, and it has no problem with the idea of wearing a stolen church shirt. And for, for me, I, I couldn't do that, but she does it proudly. So I see the journey shirt all the time around our house. And so uh, uh, they are still back in the Blue Ridge Mountains where we live. We've got a lot of family in the house uh, have for the whole holiday weekend. I don't know if you all have had a great holiday season, had family at home and, and all of that. Uh, and so I want to talk about that in a minute. But first of all, I want to say thank you for being a partner of ours. I, every, as I do every time, kind of put this map up for you to see visually one of the things that you help us do, which is to start new churches here in the region. And these are the churches that we started just since 1990 uh, in the region, about 45 projects that we've had all together. You've helped us to start seven churches in the last two years. Uh, so thank you very much for that, that, that a bunch of churches have figured out we can do a lot more together than we could individually. Uh, this coming year in 2019, uh, you're going to be helping us to start three new churches. One of them will be in the fall called the Table Christian Church. It's going to be here nearby in Aldi on the western uh, suburbs here of D.C. If you were here for the Sunday following Thanksgiving, you got to meet David Doherty, who preached on that day. David is the church planter for the Table Christian Church here in Aldi. So thanks in advance for helping us to start that church. Uh, on Easter of this year, a little bit earlier, we're going to be starting uh, Jacob's Well Christian Church, which will be in Midlothian in the Richmond area. And then next Sunday will be the first services of Kinetic Christian Church, which is going to be in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, do we have any uh, Gamecock out there? None, just like last service. So we won't talk about that church at all, but it's our, as you can tell by the map, it'll be the first time that we've had an opportunity to help start a new church in South Carolina. Um, it's, we've been in North Carolina and Maryland and Virginia up to this point. So, uh, so, so we're breaking new ground in that way. So, uh, so thanks for your partnership in, in one of the things that we do, which is to establish new churches. We also do really uh, critical strategic with church leaders uh, all around the area to help their churches get on mission and stay on mission. And so we're, we're glad to be a part of that. Uh, so, um, so I want to talk about uh, your family being here for the weekend. How many of you all went to see a movie over the holidays with your family so far? Raise your hand if you went and seen. No, not too many. I think it's one of the biggest activities for most Christmas holidays because you've seen your family enough and you can do something together where you don't have to talk to each other for two hours. <laughs> Uh, right? And so you go to the movies and you feel like you're doing your duty of a family event, uh, but really just get to sit and eat popcorn. And that's, that's, uh, that's what you need. And so uh, I, we, my family went and saw a movie. It was a sequel uh, that we, we saw. It was Bumblebee, the movie, which is the next Transformer movie. And actually, it wasn't all that bad. If you've been following the, tra the trajectory of the Transformer movies, it was like good, fair, Bad, 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 right, uh, so far. So this one actually is on the upswing because it was a pretty decent sequel that, that we went and saw, so I don't want to give that away. One thing I will tell you, uh, this is a spoiler alert, it's a chick flick of all things, and so it, which really changes the equation for a Transformer movie, doesn't it? So, uh, so you can go see that as a family. Uh, and I was thinking about this uh, with, a, with the, the Bible story that I want to talk about today is that sequels are, are kind of a big thing. They've really taken off since the 1970s in our culture, that uh, Hollywood has figured out that they can make some money if they figure out how to write, make a good sequel, because unfortunately they don't do that very often. And most sequels that are made are not as good as the original, but sometimes they figure out how to make 
a movie that's a sequel that's actually better than the original. And so my family and I drove to Indiana and back a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about sequels and which ones were good ones versus worse. And uh, so here's a, some of the ones that we came up with. I think Christmas Vacation, anybody watch that on the TV uh, this, this year? It's kind of a family tradition. I think that movie was actually better than the original Vacation movie. Uh, which isn't saying a whole lot, but uh, you can only see so much of Chevy Chase, and after you've seen this one, you should quit. Uh, but actually, I think this is a, cla- a kind of Christmas classic, and so this sequel was better than the original, and uh, it was pretty good. Another one uh, was uh, that came out last year, Incredibles 2, somehow I think was better than the original, and the original one was pretty good, and they, I think they took it to a whole nother level. I don't know about if you'd agree with me. Other people would, would talk about other uh, sequels uh, like um, uh, Empire Strikes Back, uh, I think was maybe better better than the New Hope, and there's some purists out there would stone me. But I think Empire Strikes Back number five, which was number two, but it's actually number five of Star Wars, was probably a little bit better than number four. And uh, now Solo was a whole other story that came out last year, and it was like, mm, well, so uh, anyway. So another one that just came out, maybe some of you have seen, is Mary Poppins Returns. Anybody go see that yet in the movie theater? One guy went and saw that right there. <laughs> By yourself? Did you go by yourself? Uh, no, she you took one. Mary Poppins Returns. Did you see that one coming? 50 years later, Mary Poppins Returns. I, when I heard this came out, I thought, I like Emily Blunt a lot as an actress, but this is like a really big career risk to take yourself up against Julie Andrews, right? It's like, woo, if this doesn't work out well, she could be done. Uh, but the re- reviews are actually fairly good out there for this. So if you want to go see that, I've heard that it's pretty good. I didn't know she could sing, but apparently it's a musical. It's, does she sing in the movie? She sings, and so I don't know if she's Julie Andrews, but apparently she must be pretty close because the reviews are pretty good. So there's some movies out there that there's, and we could talk about lots of sequels that were pretty good. I liked Rocky II better than Rocky One. I'm a Rocky, big Rocky fan, and I thought two was better than one. Uh, and we could go on and on about good sequels. But unfortunately, Hollywood has figured out how to make bad sequels a lot better than good sequels, and there's lots of examples of that. And so one of them, I would say, for Christmas time, Home Alone 4. Did you know there was a Home Alone 4? No, because you saw 10 minutes of Home Alone 3 and said, that's enough. And uh, they made a Home Alone 4. And just look at the girl in the bottom left hand. She's supposed to be a bad guy. And just the movie poster is telling you this is bad acting, right? Is that if that's the bad guy in the movie, I'm not going to see it. So that, that, I have never seen Home Alone 4, uh, thankfully. Number, another one that we could think of, uh, I'm a Rocky fan. Rocky 5 was the worst. Street fighting with Tommy the Gun Morrison. Don't, don't waste your time. And actually, it hit the bottom point, so there's nowhere to go but up from there. And so now there's been a few extra ones with uh, Stallone that, or uh, Balboa that came out in 06. And now the two Creed movies, which are actually pretty good. And so this was the low point of the Rocky franchise. It was Rocky V. It was bad news. Uh, another one, Dumb and Dumberer. If the first one wasn't bad enough, they're telling us in the title, this one's going to be worse. And, uh, and so they're telling us right up front, this is a bad movie. They actually made another one after this. Do you know that? There was t- Dumb and Dumber 2 that no one went and saw. But, uh, but this one, uh, uh, Dumb and, and we could probably come up with all kinds of sequels that they didn't figure out how to make it worth going to see. Um, I, I haven't seen it yet, uh, but there's a new Sherlock and Holmes movie out that came out, a new sequel uh, with Will Ferrell. And I saw over the weekend that somehow it had accomplished a difficult feat, which they had so far had gotten a zero on Rotten Tomatoes. 
That's hard to do to say we are the worst movie ever. Uh, and somehow over the weekend, the reviews are, it's really bad. I'm sorry if you went and saw it already and wasted your $10 or $12. But uh, so somehow Hollywood has to figure out how to take an original story and add something to it, a twist to that story to make it worth having another story told about that particular that thing. And I want to talk about that in a, in a biblical story that we see in the Old Testament, and it kind of has to do with us moving from one year to the next, that we're here in 2018 and we're sliding into 2019. And that story, the original story, I want to talk about the setup, which would be the original story, and then the sequel, which was the, the second story. But this is a sequel not many people know about. And then the twist that's in that sequel that makes it as good as or even better than the original. And so the story I want to talk about, the account is of the Exodus. In, in the book of Exodus, when God's people left Egypt and passed through the, de- the Dead Sea and, and were saved in that way. And, uh, of course, I, I wonder how many people in the room are old enough, uh, have seen the original movie, the, the Ten Commandments, with Charlton Heston. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie. I said this to my kids who are in their 20s, and they were like, what are you talking about? You know, so, uh, so, so it's a great movie by Cecil B. DeMille and uh, Charlton Heston in the iconic role. I think they should make it again since there's so many young adults that have never seen this movie. Millennials have never seen this movie. And so I was talking with my girls who are adults about recasting this movie. If we were going to recast it and make it again, uh, I would pick, you'd have to pick different characters because these ones are all dead now. So you'd have to pick different ones. And so like for Pharaoh, the original Pharaoh was Yul Brenner. Uh, and then I would recast Yul Brenner as Ben Kingsley when he, when he did a pretty good job, don't you think? He kind of looks like a Pharaoh somehow. If there is a Pharaoh look, he's got it. Uh, and then Moses going from Charlton Heston, who was the stud of his era in, in Hollywood. And so if I was going to recast Moses, I would pick The Rock, right? <laughs> That'd be awesome. All the women would go see this movie, I'm sure, because The Rock would play Moses. I think he would do a great, all the women are nodding just like this. I see you out there. All right. And then the other person I would have to recast that relates to our story today is Moses' protege, his, his junior warrior that he trained to take over his place when he, when he retired. And he trained up this warrior, Joshua, and it was placed by this uh, played by this fellow named uh, John Derrick uh, back in the 50s. And uh, I, if, if it were me, I would cast him with Michael B. Jordan, the warrior from uh, the Black Panther and the Creed movies. I think he would do a great job uh, playing Joshua in the new movie, don't you? I think that'd be pretty good. So, uh, so we would have to recast this movie. So, so for many of you, I don't know if you know the original story, so I want to recap that real quick before we get into the, the sequel. If you know the story, the account in the book of Exodus, God's people have been in bondage. They've been in slavery in Egypt for over 200 years. So if you think about that for a second, 200 years, that's like as long as our country has been around in, in the United States. They've been in slavery that long in Egypt under uh, Pharaoh. And uh, so it finally comes time for God to deliver his people from out of Egypt, and he chooses Moses to be the person who would do that, to be his leader to do that. Moses had grown up in in, uh, Egypt, had moved away for about 40 years, and so Moses comes back on the scene to tell Pharaoh, you need to let my people go. And Pharaoh, who was a shrewd businessman, realized it would not be very prudent to let three million people leave his country who were all forced labor, free labor, basically. That would not be a a very smart move. And so he says, no. And so then uh, to convince uh, Pharaoh to let his people go, God allowed Moses to cast 10 successive plagues on Egypt 
uh, trying to convince Pharaoh to let these three million people go. And three million is an estimate of how many people there are. Uh, we, the Bible tells us there were 600,000 men in Israel, uh, Israelites at that time. So if you counted uh, women and children, 600,000, we'd have to guess two, three, four million. And so we'll just we'll guess at that. So Pharaoh was not going to let three million slaves just walk out. And so we had to have these. And so there were these plagues that happened uh, kind of a week at a time. And so uh, if you know the story, one of them was uh, God turned the, the tap water into blood for a week. That's pretty gross. And then uh, there were frogs and boils and lice, each in successive order. Uh, there was one whole week that on Egyptian cable TV, they only played the Kardashians all week long. <laughs> and that still didn't convince Pharaoh to let these people go. And so uh, what they, the final of the 10 plagues was that God killed the firstborn son of any of the Egyptians, even the firstborn of the animals in Egypt, the firstborn of, of every flock uh, and litter w- was killed. <clears throat> and the Egyptians, the Israelites were saved from this, if you know the story, that the night that the, Paso- that the angel, the death angel came through Egypt at the time, Ramses uh, came through and, uh, and the firstborn son of every house was killed if there was not the blood of a lamb that was spread over the doorpost of that house. And so the, the Israelites knew that they were to do that. And so they, they killed a lamb and they put the bl- blood over the doorpost. And if you know, don't know the story, that's where we get the word, the Passover, because the, the death angel would pass over the house and, and that, that family would be saved from that because of the blood of the lamb that was shed in place of that firstborn. And so it's tremendous uh, imagery that we have for the New Testament, isn't it? And so, uh, so the, past, the death angel came through uh, the city and all the firstborn, including Pharaoh's firstborn son, were killed that night at midnight. And so finally, Pharaoh is convinced that he's had enough and he's going to let the Israelites go, all three million of them. And he brings Moses in. He says, just get out. You and all of your people get out of my country. In his mourning for his son, he told him that. And so, so the people had been prepared for this. They knew that that this was probably going to be the time that they would go. And so Moses had told them to be ready for that. And so three million people pack up and walk out of town in the middle of the night. And to give some context, you know, that's like the whole metro area of Washington, D.C., three million people just up and walking out and, and walking towards the biggest body of water locally. So the Potomac River, if we were going to take three million people and walk across the Potomac River, that's what it would be like. And so they, they walked down into the wilderness uh, to, to get out of town. And then a couple days later, Pharaoh had had a few days of mourning, and then he comes to his senses and realizes, I just lost my whole workforce. Uh, and so we've got to go get them. So he tells his generals, he calls military in and says, we've got to go round up those three million people. And so they sent out every war chariot they had, all the officers and the Egyptian army went to go get them. And so you can imagine if you've been in the desert, the wilderness just uh, coming up, the, the cloud of the dust, you could see them coming after them. And uh, so, so God's people were right up against the Dead Sea right there and, and uh, the Red Sea. And so, um, so they were like, we're stuck right here. Moses, you're an idiot. What did you bring us in the wilderness to die for? Because uh, here comes Pharaoh's army to get us. And so this is where we get the big miracle where God's going to part the waters and allow 3 million people to cross over the Red Sea on dry land. And if you do a little bit of research, it's fascinating that the, the ge- uh, geographical, uh, geological uh, societies have done research on the, the 
floor of the Red Sea in this area, and that it's uh, three to 5,000 feet deep at most places in this area. Uh, but there's one area right there uh, through the northern part of it that's only 300 feet deep for a nine-mile stretch from coast to coast. And so you could walk three million people across if the waters parted on dry land, uh, and, and there it goes. And so uh, the people cross. And the interesting thing is uh, that Moses had to raise his arms and his staff like that, and, uh, and I don't know if he looked exactly like that, but that looks pretty legit to me. So, uh, so he raised his arm, and, and, and all three million people cross on dry land. And then Pharaoh's army shows up, and they, they get right into the middle of that. And then he puts his arms up again, and the water comes down and kills the whole Egyptian army. All of their war chariots, all of their officers, they're all gone. And the people were delivered by God through this event of the people passing through the water. And so that's the end of the original story, and it's a great story, and, and they begin wandering in the wilderness. And then we, we make the sequel, and it's kind of like Mary Poppins, which is 50 years later. The sequel comes up, it's 40 years after this. 40 years later, we get to the book of Joshua, just a couple chapters or a couple books over in your, in your Bible from the book of Exodus, and we find out that there's another story very similar to this one that most people haven't heard. It's a sequel that most people haven't seen the movie. The movie's never been made, to my knowledge. I've seen Charlton Heston, but I've never seen the Joshua chapter 3 movie. I think it should be made, and I want to talk about that a little bit today. And so um, you find out where I am. So it's 40 years later, and Joshua chapter 3 starts, or chapter 1, kind of tells us kind of where we are in the story. It's kind of abrupt. After the death of Moses, all right, so we figure out, okay, here's where we are. Moses has been God's leader for 40 years. Moses dies. Here's the next movie that we're going to start. It's, a, it's, it's the transition of time from Moses to Joshua being the leader of God's people. And then, so if you've got your Bibles, you may want to turn to the book of Joshua. We're going to look at several verses from the beginning of, of Joshua here. Joshua chapter 1 begins, after the death of Moses, the Lord said to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, Joshua already knew that, but, but uh, that's what God says. And he says, now then, uh, you and all your people, all three million of them, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to the Israelites. So they're going to cross the river into Canaan, the promised land that they've been promised for generations, since all the way back to Abraham, 430 years earlier, had been promised that they'd been given this land, and tomorrow is the day it's going to happen. After 400 years of waiting to have their own land to, to have as their country, it's going to happen. Uh, then in verse 5, it's interesting, uh, Joshua goes out and tells the people, we're going to cross the Jordan River, and he said, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. We're going to get back to that, but it's interesting that he said, this is what we need to do to get ready, is we need to consecrate ourselves, and then we're going to see God do some great stuff. And so then you follow along uh, in, in, verse, in chapter 3. Chapter 2 we skipped over, which is a whole other story, which is the story of the two spies going in to make sure everything was okay, and they were hidden by uh, Rahab. And, uh, and there's a whole story of faith wrapped up in there as well. But we're going to skip chapter two. When they make the movie, it's a great side chapter in the movie uh, that, that recurs later in the book. But chapter three then we get into, and Joshua tells the people, hey, get ready, we're going to cross the Jordan River. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan River, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. So you get the picture. You've got the, the priests from the temple, and they're carrying the Ark of Covenant 
Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of style, and they're carrying it. And the Bible tells us that they were, people were not supposed to get too close to that because of the, the glory of God was in the Ark of the Covenant. It said they stayed back about a half a mile away uh, from the Ark of the Covenant. That's how far away they had to be. And uh, so, um, so, so they get there, and, and verse 15 is just a little bit of a tidbit that the, the Bible writer gives us, that the Jordan River was at flood stage during the harvest time. So you get the picture that the, this is not just kind of a dried up little creek. This is a major river at flood stage. And have you ever seen a major river at flood stage before or trying to stand in the middle of a river during flood stage? Um, my, um, you can think of the Potomac River here. I don't know what the Potomac looks right, like right now. My family and I live in the Blue Ridge Mountain and the Shenandoah River is, is right near our house, uh, within a mile of our house. And we drove over the bridge yesterday at the Shenandoah River, and it was swollen, and it looked mean and dangerous, you know, because it's swollen from all the rain that we've had. And it made me think of this story right here of the Jordan River when God's people were going to cross the Jordan River. And Joshua says, it's time to cross the Jordan River. And they're like, have you seen the Jordan River? You know, and we're supposed to cross that tomorrow. And so the, the, and I think God's just showing off here. Whenever God cho- chooses to do miracle, he doesn't pick the easy way out. He says, I'm going to show off. And so he picks the flood stage when he's going to do this miracle for them. And so that's verse 5. Then we jump down to verse 14. Or that was 14. 15 was the flood stage. 15, the Jordan River is at flood stage during harvest. And here's the, the key moment here for this miracle. As soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. So the people are going to cross over on dry land, all three million people. And the interesting part of this story is God waited until, until they stepped their foot into the water before the water crossed. So that's, that's new from the, the one before. It was just Moses raising up his hand and the water, water parted. This time, God waited until they put their feet in the water, and that's when the water parted. Isn't that interesting? I think God was really testing their faith because faith, it'd be really easy when, when God, you want God to do a miracle in your life to say, God, you go first, then I'll follow, right? Uh, but really, that is almost the antithesis of faith. Because faith is acting knowing that God's going to be there, right? And so here in this story, we see a beautiful picture of saying, faith is I'm going to take the first step in obedience and, and then knowing that God's going to work in my life. And so here's the, the principle that we, um, that we learn uh, from this sequel really quickly is that joining God at work in our lives sometimes requires us to take the first step of faith. And there may be a moment here in this next year where you're going to need to take a step of faith with your family or with your career or uh, with your faith journey of some sort of another, where you're going to be at a crossing of a river that looks difficult to cross, and you're going to want to say, God, you go first, I'll follow. And God's going to say, no, I'd like you to take the first step, and I'll meet you there. And so just like they had to, they took the first step, and that's when the waters parted. Now, if you've ever heard this story in Joshua chapter 3, which is most people don't even really know this sequel very well at all, uh, usually that's the whole sermon. I've probably in my lifetime heard a couple of sermons from this passage in the Old Testament. And uh, this is usually where the story stops, that they don't pick the twist uh, that really makes this better than the first time around. And, uh, and that's a really powerful statement, I think, is that they waited until, God waited until they put their feet in the water before he showed up. 
and we can run with that all day long. That'll preach, you know? And so, uh, but there's a little detail that the Bible writer gives us that when I thought about it for a while, I thought, well, that's what makes this sequel better than the first, all right? And it's, the application for us is huge. And so if you keep reading in the, in the Bible account, in uh, Joshua 15 says that uh, their, when the feet, their feet touch the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. But here's jo- Joshua 3.16 which I like numbers a lot, and 3.16 is a great biblical number. John 3.16 is one, and there's three or four other interesting passages in the Bible that are 3.16, and here's one of them for me. The water piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Dead Sea was completely cut off, so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. So we know that God's people crossed over uh, near Jericho, and then just a few chapters later, the whole story of the, the fall of Jericho, where the walls came tumbling down, and the, the trumpets, and, and the shouting, and all that. That's just a couple chapters later. But here's the thing that, that caught my eye. There's this little town called Adam upstream, and that when they put their foot in the water, God stopped the water. And so you do a little investigating. I found a map online because you can find anything you want online these days. I found a map online and a biblical map that shows the Jordan River going from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. And that, that Jericho is there, but Adam is the dot in the middle. Here's the deal. The little village of Adam is 19 miles upstream. Think about that for a minute. God waited for them to put their feet in the water to meet them at their step of obedience and their step of faith. But the water had stopped flowing already 19 miles upstream. Do you catch the timing of that? That God met them already at work, well in advance of their step of faith, so that when they took their step of faith, he met them right there, having already been at work. And so we could kind of say it this way, God meets us in our step of obedience, having already been at work for a long time. And it's often that we can look back at God's work in our life, and we can, in retrospect, look back, like right this year, we could look back on 2018 and realize God had been setting stuff up all along. When my family was in the military, we moved every two, three years, and uh, one of the things that my mom would do when we pulled away in our ugly green station wagon with brown paneling as we'd pull out of our driveway for the last time headed to whatever Air Force base we were moving to is we would have a conversation as a family where she would say, so why did God want us in this town for the last two years? And we could look back and realize that God had wanted us to meet this person and have influence on this person or for us to grow in this way. And we could see that he'd been at work for a long time to lead us to this place for a couple of years. And this little detail that we get in the book of Joshua is fascinating that for 19 miles, however long it takes for floodwaters to go 19 miles, I don't know how, we'd have to time it, but how long does it take for floodwaters to move 19 miles? It takes a while. And God had already stopped the water 19 miles upstream so that when they took their step of faith, the water stopped right then. God was at work well in advance to take care of them and deliver them. And so we probably all have stories that we could look back and see that God was already at work. I uh, could tell you one 
probably the most dramatic one in my life happened uh, many years ago in 1993. My wife and I, 92 and 93, my wife and I made the decision uh, to move to the former Soviet Union. It's right after communism fell to help establish a church and a, an accredited Bible department in one of the local colleges there, which had been unheard of in the former Soviet era to have Bible departments in a college. And uh, so, so we moved there and we hadn't lived there even six months when uh, one night... Uh, just after we'd gone to bed late in the evening, there was a knock on our front door. And so I got up out of bed and went to see who was at our door. And as I opened the door, I was greeted by a pistol, the business end of a pistol, and three guys pushed their way into our apartment. Uh, and they smelled of alcohol and uh, knew this wasn't going to be a good evening. And the next 20 minutes seemed like an eternity as they ransacked our apartment looking for any valuables and, 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 and money that they thought we'd have as rich Americans. They thought we were rich Americans. They didn't know I was a preacher. And so they were, they were, uh, they were disappointed. And so, uh, uh, <clears throat> so they were there for, for uh, quite a while. And... Um, I was beaten up pretty badly, and my wife, who was tied up in the bed, was stabbed in the leg by one of the, one of the men. And having seen way too many crime movies in America, both of us independently, we told each other later, thought that this was it for us because we'd seen their faces for 20 minutes. So we thought, we are not getting out of this evening alive. And so our only concern really was for our one-year-old baby girl who was still somehow sleeping in her crib in the bedroom next to ours while all this was going on. And uh, so, uh, so finally, it was time for them to leave and get their getaway, and so they tied my wife and me up it together, back to back, in the middle of our bedroom floor. And, uh, and then, I guess they wanted to make sure that I wasn't conscious when they left so I wouldn't chase after them. One of them did a roundhouse kick, MMA style, to my head, and I, and I was out, and then they, they took off. And so uh, a couple, several minutes later, I came to, and uh, my wife and I, just like in the movies, untied our hands from behind our backs together, and my wife then went off to a neighbor to call the cops. Um, and uh, so, so the cops came uh, several, several minutes later, and, um, and unfortunately, as you might be able to imagine, the Russian cops seemed less trustworthy than the thugs that had been in our house. Uh, they, they all looked a little sketchy to me, and so, uh, so I, we didn't know what to do about that, but they could tell pretty quickly that I needed medical attention from the kick to my face because my cheekbone was now swollen up over my eyebrow, and so they said, we need to send you to the hospital, so this, this old ambulance, kind of looked like the, the ambulance in Ghostbusters, uh, uh, came and got me and took me to the hospital, and, uh, and they, they did x-rays on my face. And I didn't trust their, their opinion very much when they took the x-rays that said there was no broken bones, came, came up negative, because even the guy taking the x-rays was not standing behind the lead wall as he took the pictures. And so I was like, I don't know what he knows what he's doing. And so they, they finally, about um, daybreak, I got back to our house where my wife was, and uh, it was like a crime scene investigation. There was the fingerprinting dust everywhere and, and taking pictures with a bunch of people in every room. And finally, they, they all were, were leaving. And, um, and my wife says, when she tells the story, she knew at that moment, that morning, that we needed basically three things. Uh, they, that we needed money because these guys had taken everything that we had. Uh, we needed medical attention because we didn't trust the doctors there in the town that we were in. And, uh, and she said she needed her mommy uh, just because. Uh, and that, um, that that was the three things that she needed the most in that moment. 
Well, here's the twist to this story is that while all this was going on, there happened to be a mission trip coming from our home church. A fairly large team had already left uh, their, their uh, home airport and were en route uh, to our, our uh, town. And uh, so they were already coming. And we didn't know it at that time, but we found out very soon that as they arrived, or they came and arrived to our apartment about noon of that next morning after the cops finally left. They arrived and they had heard uh, when they landed at the previous airport what was going on, so they came right to our place. And uh, one thing that we did not know is in their last mission trip meeting, the church had decided to send with them an extra $3,000 just in case we'd need it. And uh, so they handed us, do you need $3,000? It's like, well, we really do, because we had all of it taken. And then on this team, there happened to be a doctor. And not just a doctor, but a maxillofacial surgeon. All right, he's a guy that every day... diagnoses and treats broken cheekbones. And so he did, a, he did an examination physically on my face that was all swollen. And he said, I don't have an x-ray machine, but I can tell you've got at least three broken bones in your face that you need to go have fixed uh, pretty quickly. And so later that week, we flew to Ireland to a little bit more modern hospital. And, uh, and I had surgery to fix my face. Don't you like how they did? Uh, and so, um, and so, uh, so he was able to figure that out. And he just happened to be on this team. And then, not only that, but on this team, on her very first mission trip, was my wife's mom. And uh, she walked in and took care of my wife and me and our little baby girl. And, uh, and God was working 19 miles upstream. That in the moment of our greatest weakness, when we needed something the most, he had already been at work in advance, working on our behalf so that he met us right at that moment. And there are times in your life, maybe in this coming year, where you're going to go through them and you're going to wonder, is God there? Does God even know? Does God care? And looking back a year from now, maybe I'll be preaching this sermon like I was last year at this time. We'll look back over this year and you'll be able to look back and say, you know what? I can see how God was at work in advance because of my faith in him. He was working 19 miles upstream. So there's an application I think we have to make about this, this, and then we'll be about done. And that is going back to that verse in Joshua chapter 3 where Joshua tells the people it's time to get up and get going like it's, I'm here saying it's time to get up and get going in 2019. And what did, he tell, what did he tell them to do? He said you need to consecrate yourselves. And that's a churchy word, isn't it, that you don't really know what that means exactly. Uh, there's a, there's a, a non-biblical Uh, way that you can express that, which is to just dedicate yourself wholly to something that's really important Uh, in a spiritual context, which is typically what it's used in, is to set yourself aside, dedicating yourself to God. And so that's what Joshua told the people before they were to cross the Jordan River, is of all the things that we need to do, we need to stop and say, God, we're all yours. As we cross into our new chapter as a people, we're all yours. And it's no surprise that in the Bible, this isn't the only time this, is, this, is, uh, this appears. There's actually more than 40 times in the Bible that God's people are challenged to consecrate themselves. Before people left Egypt that night that the death angel came and that they were to be ready, right on the move, to, to, uh, to be able, ready to, to march out of Egypt, guess what they were instructed to do by Moses? Consecrate themselves. When they moved from this chapter to that, They were to re-up and say, God, we're all in. 
And so I, th- I believe that God loves to challenge his people to make a recurring resolution to dedicate ourselves wholly to him. So that's why we've got this message here on this Sunday is I think we need to make a recurring resolution, not just a one-time shot that we did a long time ago, but we make a recurring resolution every year, every month, every week, however often it needs to be, that you would say, God, I'm all yours. And maybe there's someone in this room that would be the first time that you've made that decision. You've been wrestling with this whole idea of faith and the craziness of stepping in the water and God hadn't shown up yet and you're just going to know that he's there. And so if you're a person that, that you're wrestling with that decision for the very first time to consecrate yourself, then I want to challenge you. We're going to have some people in the back of the room here at, as we conclude the service, a prayer team, that there are people that will pray with you and talk with you about what that looks like to give yourself, to give your life to God. There may be other people that are kind of on the end of that first decision process where you're deciding, I'm ready to make that step. For the very first time, I'm going to commit my life to God. And there's a moment in Scripture uh, that God gave us. It's called baptism, where in baptism, you literally, figuratively, die to yourself to be raised to live completely for God. And so maybe you're a person that... uh, that you've never made that step of baptism, that God gave us this moment, this recurring resolution where we get to publicly say, God, I'm all yours. And so there's a place on your Connect card that you can mark that you're interested in 2019, maybe on January 1st. I've actually baptized a bunch of people on New Year's Eve because they're making that decision that this next year and the rest of my life, I'm all in for God. And maybe that's you, that you need to make that step, that you're saying I'm all in. But for the rest of us, if you're making New Year's resolutions this year, wouldn't this be the best resolution to make? To say for 2019, God, I'm all yours. My family, my career, my future, my finances, my whole self, I'm all yours. Because I believe God loves to challenge us to consecrate ourselves regularly to him. Let's pray.